Hello, everyone. I'm Dana Stewart Bullock, and this is Transformational Therapeutics. Today's podcast is a continuation of the podcast on stress. Today, Rebecca and I continue our conversation about stress and its impact on our physiology, with special emphasis on the use of yoga and breathing to reduce stress and the why of how they work in our physiology. So welcome. Hi, Dana. Hi, Rebecca. How are you today? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Today, I am very excited about this topic, being that I do teach meditation and yoga and breath work, and we are going to be talking all about those things in relation to how they reduce stress. Is that Yeah, correct? this is a continuation of the last um, podcast, so it's more about stress, and now we talked about the mechanism of stress, and today I'll talk more about um, ways to reduce it. Right, right. So I would definitely, if anyone is listening to this for the first time, we would definitely recommend going back to the previous episode on stress. And that being said, this podcast is most beneficial if you begin back at episode one and continue that way. As we continue to build upon each other, it's just the best way to receive this information. But that being said, if you're just can't wait and want to dig into the topic of stress and start at the previous episode and come back to today. Thank you. Yeah. So I would just want to do a quick review of what I talked about last week. Mostly I talked about the physiology of stress and the actual definition that I based it on was by a man named Jak Panksepp. He was a neurobiologist and created the term affective neuroscience. And his definition of stress was that anything that activates the HPA axis If something activates that axis, then by definition it is stress. And again, the HPA axis is an axis in your body where a substance released by the hypothalamus, which is in your brain, that then goes to the pituitary, which is the master gland in your brain, and then to your adrenal glands, which are just above your kidneys, and causes your body to produce cortisol and a stress reaction. So that by definition, if that feedback loop is activated, that is stress. And last week we talked about different kinds of stress, including emotional, chemical, and physical that set this axis off. So I'd like to just continue from there. Great. And last week we didn't talk that much about the physical impact on that system. Mm. So I just wanted to add from a physical standpoint, for instance... If you are physically healthy and then you suffer an injury where you have to, let's say, use a cane or a walker, that is a physical stress to your system. It requires much more energy to function. Mm. So things like that are physical stresses. If I remember from school, there was something, there was once a quote that if one joint in your leg is compromised, it requires 30% more energy to function. Mm. And if it's two joints, it goes up to 300%. Wow. So you're expending more energy to function if you have any sort of disability or dysfunction in your body that will influence the stress system that we just talked about. Well, that makes so much sense. Even just thinking about if you ever have one ankle that's sore, if you like just have one little injury, not even a, a tremendous thing, but when you're not walking normally on one foot, then you feel like your whole body is exhausted Yeah. trying to compensate. Yeah. Another quote that I don't remember where this came from, but I've always held on to it. Stress is not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. I love that. 
And so what that means is it depends on your baseline ability to withstand the stresses of life, whether they're chemical, physical, or emotional, and what your baseline system is capable of tolerating and working with. Mm. And we'll get into that when we talk about ways to reduce stress in terms of yoga and breathing and meditation as three, as three ways. We talked last week about the chemical stress from our environmental toxins and the way they are introduced into our physiology, not only by food, but by uh, healthcare products and creams and lotions and that sort of thing. Right. So from here on out, I'd like you to really look at the entire body in the physical form as an ecosystem and a dynamic ecosystem. There are many people in literature who talk about homeostasis, which means the system is in balance. I used to have a mentor, and he talked about homeodynamics, which means that in every second during the day, your body is adapting and adjusting to what's coming at it or into it or whatever. So I'd like you to think of the system as a dynamic ecosystem, mm. always moving, always changing. I love that. Always moving, always changing. I think in always adapting, right? I think we tend to take it for granted that it is always changing and always adapting. We just think we are how we are. And that's, that's that there's nothing we can do about it. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. That's the basis for all of this to understand stress because the ability to adapt and be dynamic is an anti-stress factor if you have a good ability versus less of an ability. Mm. It's like a physiological ability to adapt. You know, Darwin talked about survival of the fittest, but he actually said survival of the most adaptable. Mm. And that adaptation takes place within your physiology from minute to minute. And so are what you're saying is that we can improve our adaptability? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And your adaptability psychologically and neurologically is very much influenced by your early childhood, basically how you were parented and how your brain develops in response to the stresses that you're put through. We talked last week about baby monkeys and their ability to adapt to the lack of mothering and how that influences their brains. And because your brain is developing as an infant, those tracks that deal with stress are laid down very early. And if you have a very stressful infancy, then you will be more hypersensitive throughout your life to stresses that come in and less able to adapt mm. because of the wiring that was laid down early on. And on that note, I found some research that was done, and it was done more for public policy reasons. It was done at Harvard University, and they were looking at actual brain images of children in this country. And this is not directly, it wasn't a study about stress, it was a study about social benefits that were given to children in need. And the states that had the most generous benefits, the kids who were recipients of those benefits, had larger hippocampus in their brains. So your brain development is directly affected by the stresses that you are brought up in. So the larger hippocampus indicates that they had a better chance or a worse chance? They had a much better chance. The hippocampus is about memory and learning and that sort of thing. And if you're too stressed out, you don't learn. Right. And that's the connection with the hippocampus. Wow. And it was interesting because the team that was doing the research found almost a 40% difference in brain size 
in the states where the children got more generous benefits than in the states where they didn't. These are children in poverty, mm-hmm. but it really impacts how your brain develops. I just tell you a quote. There's a woman who she works with children and she was talking about enriched environments and parenting. And she said parents that struggle to pay the bills really have less time to read to their children or take them to the park or do things with their children. And we talked about touch last week. It's just really an inability to spend quality time with your children has such an impact on brain development and movement and sensory input. I mean, it's so important in brain development to have, again, I did the podcast on the senses, to have that kind of sensory input in touch, hearing, smelling, taste, and seeing. That's what the brain develops from. And if you have a heightened, rich sensory environment, then you get a much richer output. What goes in influences what comes out of your brain. I mean, it makes so much sense, but it is quite wild when you really think about it. Why? I, I don't know. To me, it's just it's just cool. <laughs> it's it's cool to think about that. Wow! If I if I had a child, I'd want that to immerse them in as many different sensory experiences as I could, knowing that information. Like take them to places where they could experiment with different smells and do different art projects. And I don't know. It's just fascinating to think about that. That you are if. If you are a parent and listening to this and you do things like that, like know the power that you're having on your child's it's, brain it's, development. It's, uh, you're omnipotent in that arena. And I spent so many years working with brain-damaged children, mm-hmm. trying to alter the input and make it healthier and more diverse so that they could have a healthier outcome. You know, I talked about this in the episode about masks and children. So much of it was trying to enrich and normalize input into their brains to change the brain development so that the outflow would be healthier and more varied and diverse and and that they would be more capable. Right. I would look at the kids I was working on as brains. It was like my job to help form their brain. And a parent might not look at their children that way, but that's really what you're doing. Yes. Yes. When I hear my friends who have young children say that they're hoping to develop adults who can contribute to society, that means they have a functioning brain that can receive information, process it, and... And in our culture today, so many children aren't exposed to the to nature, to the outside, to so many different sensory inputs, trees and sky and rain and grass and somersaulting and you just name it. Yes. Playgrounds and, and nature walks and swimming. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And the more you can provide that system, the richer that system becomes. Yes. It is so powerful. I'm on the, the board for the Pratt Center, which is an outdoor school in New Milford, Connecticut. And it is wild to see these children, like young children, all to 18, I, I believe. They even have some programs for summer camps and such. But the young children, especially, just to see how much confidence they develop and how much empowerment you see in these children when they're just outside all weather. And now hearing this information and applying it to what I'm seeing there. And those children will have a much better ability to deal with stresses later on in their lives. <laughs> I mean, that's a given. That is so important to acknowledge. And, you know, learning how to cope with adversity, and it doesn't just mean social adversity, it means physical adversity. It means 
any kind of adversity you come up against. These kids, the more experience they have, the more ability they have to cope with, you know, you fall down, you climb a tree, you, I mean, these are just physiological, if you look at it, it's really adversity that you're overcoming on a continuous sort of microscopic level, Hmm. but it, it instills such skill in your system. Yes. Whereas sitting in front of a computer screen does the opposite. So I guess going out into nature could be one way to cope with stress, to work with stress, reduce it. And the other part is, I mean, we talk about environmentally getting out in nature, but the environment of their relationships also impacts how their brain develops Mm. and how stable their relationships are and how much skill they're given in relationship as children. Right. Those all impact their stress response systems throughout life. Right. Now, if the child is exposed to long-term stress, long-lasting, and there aren't relationships available to the child that will buffer those stresses, the brain itself will be weakened. The systems are weakened in terms of their ability to deal with stress, and that will have lifelong repercussions. Any child needs a lot of input on many levels to actually form their brain and to impact the health of their systems in their brain. And so much of it is sensory and social. This is just a quote. It's important to distinguish with children among the three kinds of responses to stress. There's positive, tolerable, and toxic And this refers to the stress response system's effect on the body, not the event itself. So a positive stress response is a normal and essential part of healthy development. For instance, if the child falls down, a positive response would be to support the child to realize that they are okay. They're not damaged. They can get up. They're functioning, that sort of thing. That's an impact on their developing brain. And that's just one example. So falling down will activate that HPA axis within the child. And the response that that child sees from the adult and learns from will instill long-term habits in their actual brain. Mm. And repetitively over time, a child that's taught to deal with adversity in a way that is positive, that child will have a much better ability to deal with stress later on in life. Right. So tolerable stress activates the body's alert systems to a greater degree. And it's usually a result of more severe or longer-lasting difficulties, such as the loss of a loved one. That's not just normal childhood stress. That's a, a larger stress. Or a natural disaster or a frightening injury. And if that is then buffered by an adult relationship where the adult can help them work through that stress, then it becomes tolerable. Mm -hmm. And I I think at this moment, I think about the children in Ukraine Hmm. and the impact of the stress of that whole war on them and and what sort of systems do they have in place in their family or not to deal with those, those stresses. And a toxic stress is when the stress response, the HPA axis is activated continuously with no rest and no comfort from the external world. Hmm. And that can have a cumulative toll on the mental and actual physical health of the child. 
It actually sets the kid up for a greater likelihood of developmental delays and later health problems, including heart disease, diabetes, substance abuse, and depression. Wow. So the research indicates that supportive, responsive relationships with caring adults as early in life as possible can prevent or reverse the damaging effects of a toxic stress response. Wow. So just knowing that is really important. It is. Even just thinking about, could that apply if a child has a very stressful home life, but then at school has a or a school or a friend or someone that's outside of their family that is nurturing? Could that help counteract or build some resilience? Yes. Alice Miller talked about that drama of the gifted child. She said any child needs at least one enlightened witness hmm. who can be there for them. And it doesn't have to be a parent, but they need the refuge of that caring relationship. Right, right. So these these three forms of stress, good stress, tolerable stress, and toxic stress, you refer to them in childhood, but does the same thing apply to adults as well? Well, it does apply, except it's more important in childhood because the adult that comes from one of those will have better coping skills. Uh They will have a a baseline that the tolerable will be more able than the child who was in a toxic environment because the child in the toxic environment will probably by that time in adulthood have developed a drug addiction or some sort of chronic disease, that sort of thing. Right. And so remember, it's an ecosystem. Your body is an ecosystem. And it includes the neuroendocrine immune system that it's all connected. And so stress doesn't just have an impact on your brain. It impacts your entire physiology. Mm. And could you just make clear the neuroendocrine system very quickly just in case of... Well, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis is the neuroendocrine immune system. It affects all of that. So when that HPA axis is activated, your neurology is involved in it, your immune system is involved in it, and your endocrine system. So it impacts your entire body. Right. And just in case if anyone listening doesn't know what those systems are, could you just briefly put that in layman's terms? So I I guess the real point here is your, your nervous system includes your brain and spinal cord and also your autonomic nervous system. So I'm going to expand on this a little bit. Your autonomic nervous system is what regulates us. And there's a sympathetic and parasympathetic aspect of it. And I've talked about this in prior podcasts. And they are fundamental generators of our ability to regulate ourselves. So any stress that comes in will alter our ability to regulate ourselves. And that ability can bounce back depending on how skilled you are with dealing with the stress that comes in. The sympathetic system is fight, flight, or freeze. And the parasympathetic is known as rest and digest. So when the HPA axis is activated, it influences your sympathetic nervous system. And so your body goes into fight, flight, or freeze mode. We talked last week about saber-toothed tigers. Right. And that anxiety is manifested in your sympathetic nervous system, which makes you want to flee or fight or freeze. That is a stress response in and of itself. Right. That Mm -hmm. impacts your immune system at the same time because your immune cells have receptors on them for for the chemicals that are released during a stress response. Mm -hmm. So that's the neurology, the immune system, and... Endocrine. The endocrine system. Well, the endocrine is hormones, and the hormones released 
by the pituitary, which is a hormonal gland, and the adrenals are part of that axis. Mm. And adrenaline is a hormone. Yeah, I, I just think it's so important that even for probably most of us listening know what the nervous system is, but when you really think about it and break it down in simple terms that what we're talking about is affecting the body globally. Yes. And so I, I'm just going to quote Candy Pert, who I'm who, about whom I've spoken many times. She is the woman who's the um, discoverer of endorphins, which are natural pain reducers and also are peptides. So she said that, this is a quote, I was beginning to think of disease-related stress in terms of an information overload. Remember, she talked about peptides being information molecules. Mm. A condition in which the mind-body network is so taxed by unprocessed sensory input in the form of suppressed trauma or undigested emotions that it has become bogged down and cannot flow freely sometimes even working against itself at cross-purposes. When stress prevents the molecules of emotion from flowing freely where needed, the largely autonomic processes that are regulated by peptide flow, which is those molecules, these processes, autonomic processes such as breathing, blood flow, immunity, digestion and elimination, collapse down to a few simple feedback loops and upset the normal healing response. And she said also, and I've gone over this in the past, that every cell in your body has a memory of any trauma that you've had, which is a stress. Trauma is a stress, and then we so often suppress it, but it isn't forgotten. It's in every cell of your body. So you can do things like psychotherapy, talking about it, but to actually have body work, which we talked about last week, addresses those memories that are on a cellular level in our bodies. Right. She also talked about, and we'll talk about this in a minute, meditation. Candy Pert said, in meditation, by allowing long-buried thoughts and feelings to surface is a way of getting the peptides flowing again, <laughs> returning the body and the emotions to health. So, Rebecca, you're a meditation teacher mm -hmm. and a yoga instructor, mm -hmm. and you do breathing instruction also. Correct. All of those, in terms of what Candy Pert said, have an impact on that HPA axis. You can interfere or you can address stress via breathing, meditation, and yoga, all three of those. Mm. So, I'm going to start with breathing. Breathing itself is an automatic body function. So it's under autonomic control. And when you have a sympathetic fight, flight, or freeze reaction, the chest breathing will now come on board to meet the needs of a body that's getting ready to flee or fight. Right. And so you end up breathing up in your chest. Now, I'm just going to go over a little bit of anatomy. Your diaphragm is a very thin muscle that actually runs sort of horizontally underneath your heart in your chest and when it contracts it pulls down and actually pulls air into your system so when the diaphragm contracts properly your belly actually sticks out because it moves the abdominal contents out of the way as it pulls down right so if you have a question about abdominal or diaphragmatic breathing just look at your belly and your belly should be expanding as you breathe in, in a normal rest position. 
your chest should not really be moving at all. That is the most efficient way of breathing. Mm. When you're stressed out and you go into sympathetic response, which is fight, flight, or freeze, you start breathing shallowly up in your chest and your diaphragm is now not on board. Right. That will then set up feedback loop even after the stress may have been removed, of you continue to breathe up in your chest, and that tells your brain, whoops, it's stress time. And so that feedback loop keeps going around from chest breathing to brain, chest breathing to brain. Mm -hmm. And so that feedback loop is an added stress over time. Right. So intervening with teaching someone how to breathe diaphragmatically can interrupt that loop. Yes. And so we all say, I mean, I've, people have said it to me many times, breathe, take a breath, breathe. But if you don't understand how to actually breathe diaphragmatically, you may be contributing to the stress that's already happening if you're just breathing up in your chest. Right. I was teaching with a friend of mine who said, oh, yeah, sure, I know how diaphragmatic breathing. I said, so do it. And her shoulders came up. I said, that is not diaphragmatic breathing. Mm -hmm. And so I had to reteach her. She was shocked. So it's really important to understand that your belly comes out when you're breathing in properly. And the diaphragm is actually a skeletal muscle that can be strengthened. Yes. Like any, like your biceps, like any muscle in your body, and probably should be because we are all so stressed out, we tend to breathe up in our necks and chest. Sure. And therefore, just like any other muscle, it can also be tight. Yes. That's in my experience when I first started breathing diaphragmatically, it was very difficult. It felt like I was stretching a working on stretching very tight hamstrings. <laughs> like it was very difficult, almost even painful and unnatural. And then now it's, it is natural and it's very worth it. But I, I love to hear the breakdown of what is actually going on as I see it so commonly with my students as well as myself. And then there's another kind of breathing called paradoxical breathing. And it involves a combination of expanding the chest while simultaneously contracting the abdominal muscles, which then pushes the diaphragm up into the chest cavity. Mm -hmm. And although the chest wall expands, so it increases lung volume, the diaphragm rises and diminishes these gains because the diaphragm is the major breathing muscle. It's really not a very efficient way to breathe because you're expanding your chest, but your diaphragm is actually reducing the expansion of your chest because your abdominal muscles tighten. Mm. And this kind of breathing, paradoxical breathing, is seen in conjunction with a sudden shock or surprise. So one sort of reflexively gasps when startled or when given bad news. And right. so you expand the chest while tensing the abdomen. Yeah, just, <gasps> yeah. yeah, belly goes in, chest puffs up. And if that situation occurs frequently enough, the body will just start breathing like that. Mm. And that then gives a feedback loop to the central nervous system, to the sympathetic system to keep your, yeah, I'm in stress, I'm stressed. So it just keeps going. Right. When I did the podcast on grief, that to me would explain what happens. You go, <gasps> when you hear news that somebody has died. Mm -hmm. and, and when do you ever change that? That can just become a habitual way of breathing. Absolutely. The other thing that I just thought from a vanity standpoint is women 
we tend to hold our stomachs in because mm-hmm. we don't like a fat belly. And that also influences your breathing. It's You cannot breathe with your diaphragm if you're holding your stomach in. Absolutely. That was definitely me until I started practicing yoga and learning how to breathe diaphragmatically. It was so like it went against my conditioning of hold the belly in, breathe through the chest, stand up tall. <laughs> That's the impact of breathing on stress. And so just again, to recap, to really understand that your belly has to balloon out when you're breathing in to have proper diaphragmatic breathing. And you teach yoga. Mm -hmm. And so I looked up the science of how yoga impacts the HPA axis. Mm. It actually down-regulates it. Meaning? If you have a sympathetic reaction where you're in flight or fight, doing yoga actually slows down your reaction. Mm. And it also actually has been shown to prevent the release of the stress hormone cortisol. So doing yoga properly has a regulatory impact on the whole system of stress and the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Mm. So it could be used or seen as medicine, like anti-stress medicine. Yes. In my original 200-hour yoga teacher training, when I became a yoga teacher, my teacher had worked with a heart surgeon who would tell his patients that he could prevent them from getting heart disease or heal through a combination of walking, yoga, and meditation. And you needed all three. And the other impact that yoga has is on your inflammatory and endocrine responses. So doing yoga reduces inflammatory markers in your blood. And I won't go into the exact ones, but they found that after a short-term yoga lifestyle intervention, inflammatory factors were reduced markedly. And there was an increase in the activity of antiviral interferon. So you have actual physical impacts of yoga on your physiology, and it's just proved on your stress response. And it doesn't take much. No, no, it doesn't. Somewhere I was reading... That in response to stress, if you move, if you literally move, you reduce the stress response. Mm. So you're sitting in front of a screen, you can't, you're not moving. But Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, I once heard him interview and he talked about the survivors of Katrina. And one of the reasons some of them did better is because they got out and they were able to help each other clean up. They physically moved so those hormones And peptides that are released when you're stressed out have an outlet, Mm -hmm. which would be the equivalent of running away from the saber-toothed tiger, Mm -hmm. except our society, we don't do that. So people run, they do exercise, they go to the gym. If you connect that activity with trying to reduce your own stress levels, that would make it even more efficient and effective. Which would make so much sense why yoga is so powerful, because... There's a mind-body conscious connection. We direct our attention and our awareness internally and explore the, the feeling of what's going on and allow the feeling to be there while you're moving, while you're engaging, while you're stretching. And understanding that many of those feelings have been stored there from previous trauma or stresses that 
people aren't aware of and that you might get an emotional reaction Mm -hmm. by attending to a stretch or a sore place or something like that while you're doing yoga. Absolutely. It's very common. There's been many times where I've been in a hip opener and tears are just pouring while my neighbor is sitting there giggling and laughing and both of us are looking at each other saying, I don't know why, (laughs) but it's just happening because there's a, a release happening. And because we store those unresolved emotions in our tissues. Right, right. This has been really, really interesting. I personally love this topic. Does it change how you will see yourself or your students when you're teaching yoga and or breathing? Like the understanding on a physiological level of what you're actually impacting? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of it that I did know But seeing it through this lens, especially through the HPA axis, that I did not understand the breakdown of or know that term. And so hearing that term and seeing it differently, and also I love the the ecosystem analogy and the building adaptability, because a huge teaching in what I do is teaching how to move through obstacles and build resilience which is like just understanding the physiological side to it all is just, it's just so empowering on another level. I think it's so easy for us to, to feel that our stress is just in our environment, not even in our minds. So a lot of times we're like, no, this is our stress is our, our job, our family, our, our finances, but really it's, but really it's in our internal environment, in our physiology and we can impact it. Yes. And we have to. Nobody else can do that for us. Exactly. Exactly. And you can change. You can move to a different location. You can divorce your family. You can change jobs. And the stress is still in your body. Because you've learned how to deal with it. And that learning, that wiring is in there. Yes. And you're the only one who can change that wiring. Right. And you actually can. And that's what this, I think, is so important to understand. Because the more I talk about stress with people, the more I hear this aha moment of, wait, what? I have power over this? And, I mean, your entire model of transformational therapeutics is that, essentially is showing us that we have so much more power within our own physiology than we ever even dare to imagine. And the body has such profound healing abilities if we address it in in whatever avenue will change what it is we want to change. Absolutely. I know you've mentioned in the past episodes of your trauma history, because I think some people listening I know some students or potential students that I've talked to feel often, okay, that's good for you, but I've had a really traumatic history and I can't overcome that. Or I was one of those people that Dana was just describing that I had a very stressful environment at home and and I don't know if I can overcome that. And I'm just sitting over here thinking that you are the one who are teaching this and you have lived that. Do you have any words of wisdom for anyone listening if they are resonating with what I just said? Yes, I had a profoundly traumatic beginning and life and profound amounts of abuse and loss and emotional abuse, physical, on every level. And for some reason, I just have decided, I guess, working with bodies and anatomy all my life, just don't believe that I can't be well. 
And this has been what has driven me from the beginning when I was about 20 something. And I remember I was in therapy. I had a psychotherapist and I was working at that time at New York Hospital. And I had back pain. It was the beginning, the onset of my back pain. And the head of our department, the PT department, he was a physiatrist, said there was nothing wrong with my back. And so my therapist said to me, well, Dana, if he says there's nothing wrong with your back, there's nothing wrong with your back. Mm -hmm. And I remembered, I didn't say it out loud. I wasn't at that point yet. But I remember thinking, I was pain-free. There's no reason why I can't be pain-free again. I don't, I don't see why there's any reason why I can't. And that was the instigation for my entire life's work and learning all of this. And then the research I've done into the ability for the body to heal itself and all the different levels, you know, musculoskeletal, visceral, psychological, spiritual, mental, uh, just on so many levels. And I just refuse to believe that I can't be more skilled in my own physiology. And it's not easy work, but I'm not going out like that. So this paradigm, transformational therapeutics, is an outgrowth of my attempts to heal myself from what I now know was trauma, not only in utero, but throughout infancy and childhood, and also what I believe is ancestral. Yeah, and I just think it's so important to share that. So thank you for sharing that because you do live and breathe everything that you teach. I don't ever ask anybody to experience anything that I haven't already experienced. Mm -hmm. So every technique I've ever done, every you know, from orthotics to having my palate expanded to going through all kinds of emotional releases, all kinds of things. I've never asked a client or a patient to do anything that I haven't already experienced. Right, right. Well, thank you so much. I think this was an amazing conversation. Thank you, Rebecca. And if this episode was meaningful to you, take a moment to share it with someone else that you know. Send them a text, send them an email, just share the link pass this along to someone who also needs to hear this message. 